You are listening to a message from Mosaic Knox. For more information about our church, visit mosaicknox.org. So I imagine most of you in this room know someone who has been affected by cancer. Uh, It is a disastrous disease uh, that we pray one day will be thrown into the lake of fire. And it comes in many forms. And no one is excluded from such a grievous part of the fallen world. But one of the most interesting things about cancer is the community that comes around someone who has cancer. And while this is not always the case, when you go through chemo and radiation, inevitably, you may lose your hair. And while most of us probably take our hair for granted 24-7, for someone who has cancer, something they rarely thought of losing becomes a symbol that marks them in public. And all of a sudden, you can be picked out of a lineup because you have no hair, and you begin to walk around, and people begin to stare. And it's this stigma that you carry with you, and each public appearance may induce a level of shame Because you know someone is probably going to say something or at least take a second look. So in one of the more compelling moves in the cancer community, friends of someone who has been diagnosed with cancer but don't have the disease themselves do something rather extraordinary. They shave their heads. Why? Not because shaving their head is going to automatically heal the other person, at least physically. That's not how it works. But even though they can't remove the cancer, they help take on some of the shame. And even though they cannot eradicate the disease in their friend's body, they identify with them in their suffering. The point is not to heal them physically, but to stand with them relationally and communally to identify with them socially, to understand some of the pain psychologically, and to love them in a fairly radical way. There is a word for this, solidarity. Standing in solidarity with someone. Saying in so many ways, I do not understand what you are going through, but I would like to. I do not understand the pain and the frustration and the anger and the fatigue that you are experiencing, but I will take a step to understand. We are in a series about fasting, and one of the core purposes of fasting is identifying with the poor. Or, as the saying goes, standing with them in solidarity. Standing with those who have little to nothing. Poverty comes in many forms, with many results. And the real stories are much more complicated than the simple narratives. People are not narratives. They have stories. Narratives seek to oversimplify the complicated and underplay the humanity. Stories dignify the person and seek to understand the complexities. And we, as a culture, must get away from the narratives that paint with a broad brush and get much more invested in stories that require understanding, patience, and the ability, the increasingly rare ability, to hold various components of someone's stories in your hands. 
And we as the church should be the people who tell both the best stories, but also people who have the unique ability to hold another story with tremendous care and compassion. And so it is as we walk with the poor. The scriptures say a lot about poverty. There are over 200 instances in the Bible that reference how we should treat the poor. God's prescribed worshipful lifestyle in the Old Testament is incompatible with neglect of folks on the margins. It is, quite frankly, untenable to walk through the Old Testament and not have chapters and chunks of the Bible just pop out at you about how you should engage those with less. Particularly what theologians have called the quadrant of the poor, which is the poor, the sojourner, the orphan, and the widow. It is all over the books of Leviticus and Deuteronomy, which account for much of the law, Then you continue to flip the pages and almost all the minor prophets are rebuking the people of God for how their vertical worship is the definition of hypocrisy because of their horizontal lifestyle. And then God comes in the New Testament through a young, poor girl and then becomes ostracized and mistreated because of who he hangs around and touches those who are considered untouchable such as folks with deadly diseases, who, we, who would be considered outcasts. Some of Jesus' most uncomfortable words then, as they are now, come from Luke 14, which says, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. Jesus himself says that at the final judgment, when God is clothed in all his glory, this is what he will say. Come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then we make it to the letters in the New Testament where Paul recounts his journey to the church of Galatia and then recounts his encounter with Peter and James and John, Jesus' three best friends, and how they accepted Paul's ministry to the Gentiles. And then they encouraged him with this. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. And then in one of the more famous exhortations, James, religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. I didn't even give you a psalm or a proverb, and there is plenty that discuss how we go about living in the world with those who do not have the same means as you. The Anglican priest Kenneth Leach says, to disassociate the divine justice from the struggle for justice within the human community is to make nonsense of the biblical record. So as you can see, Scripture is littered with exhortations about the poor. 
But what we're going to do is actually walk through Isaiah 58, what Darren just read, because what it has to say is so relevant to us, particularly as it relates to fasting and the poor. So just for some context, I'm not going to read each chunk of scripture, but I'm going to put it up here so you can see. Here is the issue. The people of God are firmly convinced that God should be listening to them. They are adamant about the fact that they are obeying at least their perception of what God has asked of them. They are worshiping in the temple. They are fasting. They care about seeking God's presence. They are even asking God, look what we are doing. Why are you not noticing me? Notice me in my spirituality. Pay attention to me as I do something that you ask. But look at what God says. They, they seek me daily. They are delighting in me as if they were a nation that did righteousness. It's almost as if God is being sarcastic. And the word righteousness here, you've heard him mention it before, um, is sadaka, which is the Hebrew word. It's more of a combination word between righteousness and justice. So it, if we're not careful, we read this word and think purely about our vertical relationship with God. And so in essence, we feel like this gives us an out. It separates their standing from God from their social surroundings. They think that they can get by with not concerning themselves the plight of those around them. But Sadaka doesn't let them have that out. This, by the way, is the great sacred secular divide. The sacred is the part of my life that belongs to God. My friends, my church attendance, my quiet time, some of the spiritual disciplines, and some of the hot topics that I am purely uh, convinced about. And the secular is everything else. How I spend my money, how I view my time, my politics, my internet history, the shows I watch, the stuff I do, the people I ignore, my own job. And when we looked at through that lens, we fool ourselves into thinking that we can leave the secular and enter the sacred with our integrity intact. But the middle ground exposes us and we bleed hypocrisy. All of life is sacred. All of life matters to God. All that you do with your life and don't do with your life matters to God greatly, especially if you espouse his name. So, we keep going. Here's the problem. Private spirituality without social implications is biblically impossible. Private spirituality without social implications is biblically impossible. The Israelites are treating people in their camp like junk. They are mishandling conflict. They are dehumanizing images of God. And yet they somehow enter the temple to worship God, believing that they can somehow leave all that behind and worship with integrity and uprightness in heart, believing that somehow God is not concerned with those things. The form of their worship has become entirely detached from its function. It's, a, it's personal piety with the backdrop of social hierarchy. And at the end of that section is a haunting question. Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to God? 
Spiritual formation is not a wellness plan for Christians. It is not a diet you go on and do some things so you can feel a little bit better about yourself. The Israelites are engaged in a type of spirituality that has little to no ramifications for how they deal with interpersonal issues, how they deal with their direct reports, how they go about dealing with those that are not in their social class. This is a type of spirituality, by the way. God just calls it wicked. And one of the many reasons why I chose for us to enter into this conversation and season of fasting, and one of the many reasons I am prayerful that fasting becomes a regular practice in this church, is because fasting is not about personal wellness, but social holiness. Here is the tension for us. Christianity typically gets walked out in one of two ways. The first is this. We are so consumed with our personal, private relationship with God that the fact that someone would insinuate our relationship with Jesus inherently dictates our relationship with others, particularly those who are on the margins, is offensive. We are offended by that. Or, the second is, we lose our sense of prophetic voice because we are consumed by the culture we live in and not able to differentiate ourselves from this, from our society. And so much of our convictions align pretty closely with the world's larger convictions. And therefore we have no voice because we merely ride the waves of the cultural moment. Robert Mulholland puts it like this. There must be a creative tension between our spiritual pilgrimage and the world where it is lived out. If we attempt to undo this difficult tension, we move either into an unworldly spirituality that isolates us from the world or into a worldly spirituality that insulates us from the radical demands of a vital relationship with God. In the first resolution, God becomes our private possession in the second, a domesticated support for the status quo. So the problem is clear. God wants to bless the people of Israel, but he cannot square how their perceived private life and their social public life are married. So here's what God does. He walks out for them the kind of fasting he desires of them and the kind of fasting that is honoring to him. Is this not the fast I choose? Fasting is a way to identify with the margins of our world. Here is the very interesting thing. God's people talk about how they desire the presence of God, but they are void of any of his power. He is not listening to them and they are complaining. And God's solution to their problem is very, very, very counterintuitive. They believe they can leave the secular space and walk into the sacred to find God. They come off the secular streets and into the sacred temple and say, here we are, Jesus. And God says, no, 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 no. You must take the sacred with you into the secular. This is the fast that I choose. And we are like the Israelites. We are under the illusion 
that our experience of God primarily and only happens in here or in a private alone time with our Bibles open and prayer. And let me say, those spaces are valid and they're absolutely vital. But there is no way, no way on God's beautiful green earth that those are the only places where God meets us where God gives us joy, where God speaks to us in our weakness, where God carries us in our pain, where God holds up a mirror as you are interacting with someone else and says, you're just not that different. And if the people of God are not being obedient in ways to care about the issues that God cares about, then either we have not read what he has said, Or worse, we have realized it is going to cost us too much. It's going to cost us too much. Scott McKnight says, Fasting, if it is genuine, brings us into a communal spirituality because it is a response to the lack of justice in the community. If private spirituality overwhelms the communal, a person's fasting vaporizes. Fasting is body poverty. Self-impoverishment as a response to the impoverishment of others. So let's pop out of the text for just a second and consider the world we occupy right now. According to World Vision, around 700 million people still live on less than $1.90 a day. Children and youth account for two-thirds of the world's poor. And around 40,000 children die of hunger and preventable diseases per day around the world. That's just globally. (laughs) Now, if you take it, if that feels a bit overwhelming, because it probably should, um, then let's just take it down to a little more of a local. Joshua Becker is a Christian uh, who writes a good bit on minimalism, and he's done a lot of research and says this, the average American home contains... 300,000 items. 300,000. On average, Americans spend $1,700 a year on clothes and dispose of 65 pounds of clothing a year. Data from the U.S. Commerce Department cites from 2011, so this is literally 11 years ago, so I imagine it's probably more now, the, that the Americans spend $1.2 trillion annually on non-essential goods like jewelry, alcohol, candy, recreational vehicles, and gambling. And according to the United States Interagency Council on Homelessness, in 2019, nearly 20,000 students in the public school system experienced homelessness in Tennessee. 20,000. And I could spend the rest of the time giving you crazy stat upon crazy stat of inequity, gross excess, overconsumption, and dehumanization around the world, around this country, around our city. But you don't need me to tell you of the world's brokenness. You you know, although I do think sometimes it can be a good refresher because it makes sure we still have a pulse. But stats like this can be a bit paralyzing, and I totally get that. In some ways, I actually really hesitated on sharing these because you hear them and you get very, very, very overwhelmed. And then being paralyzed is actually what kills Christians. 
We see the brokenness and plight, and so we just throw our hands up. I can't do anything about this. And unfortunately, what happens is when, we, when, we, when that happens, we end up not only not doing anything, but then we just grow calloused. Like some of you probably saw those and just immediately glazed over because it just, it's just too much. It's just too much. And it is this all or nothing approach that is what typically buries us. God is not asking us to do all things, but he is inviting us to do something, something deeper, something more, something of substance. And you are probably asking, how in the world is personal fasting going to contribute to these issues? Well, let me give you something very, very, very easy. Take the average amount of money that you would spend on a meal or on meals the day that you fast and literally give that money to someone who doesn't have it. It's the lowest hanging fruit. But there's something actually much deeper than that, I think, which is if you abstain from a meal a day, a day a week for the next 10 years, and instead of eating, use that time to pray. And in your prayer, you pray for the poor of the world and you ask Jesus, where is my life and the life of those on the margins? Where are they intersecting? And if you did that for the next decade, don't you think God would speak something relatively profound to you? Don't you think there is something in you that would fundamentally change? Abstaining from food for a decade is not going to radically change the external circumstances of the world, but it is going to radically change you. It will absolutely change you. And I can almost guarantee that if you did that for the next decade, that your desire for the margins would grow, that your tendency to stereotype would die, and you would get exposed and undone for the rest of your life. And maybe for you, God would bring to mind a specific people group, a specific marginalized community, a set of people who have been dehumanized. Maybe, maybe he would even do something crazy and give you someone's face, someone's name. I mean, some of you are called to care for victims of trafficking, and some of you are called to care for neglected children. And some of you are called to invest in the lives of houses in this neighborhood that you have no desire to step into. And some of you are called to care about the global poor. And some of you are called to consider the ways in which your home can be a haven for abused people. Not everyone is called to everything and not everyone is called to most things. But everyone is called to something. And it's not because, here, please, please hear me. It is not because it's the Christian thing to do. It's because that's where we meet God. It is in the sacred streets of our community, God's streets, because we live in God's world and God's image bearers are all around us. There is a girl two streets over. We do not share the same culture, the same language, the same background, the same upbringing. She has experienced trauma. I have experienced safety. She has experienced poverty. I have experienced riches. She has experienced loss. I have experienced abundance. She has experienced evil. I plainly haven't. 
And the beautiful part about our relationship with her is the fact that we share nothing in common except one concrete, observable reality that we are made in the image of the invisible God. And I have seen the face of God more in this young woman than I have most of my life. The past month and a half, I will say I have not known the joy of God more except when riding in the car with her, taking her to a young mom's class and her 15-year-old self saying, I've been praying to God. I think he listens. And fighting back my own tears, my measly pathetic response was, I think so too. And we are not the hero of the story. Jesus is. We have done nothing except see the face of Jesus in the life of a young girl. And it was sometime last year where it hit me and I sensed the Spirit of God say, when you look at this family, you're looking at me. And you can seek, he, I, I genuinely sense God saying, you can seek to understand cultural distinctions. You can try and climb over the language barrier. You can know there are ex- some external differences in worldview, but over and above everything else, I need you to see me because I love them and I love you enough to expose you. The line that got me this week when I read this passage, Isaiah 58, Is it not to share your bed with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Meaning you and them, (laughs) me and her, we hold simultaneously the same divine DNA. Broken, sinful, made in his image. Me and her, we are absolutely not the same. And me and her, we mirror one another in our image bearing. So when you avoid the poor and when you turn a blind eye and you intentionally choose to disengage, and by the way, it is an intentional choice, especially in this community because poverty is here. You are hiding yourself from your own flesh. What you are saying outwardly is, I'd rather not deal with you. And what you are saying inwardly is, I'd rather not deal with me. Because I'm not really afraid of you. I'm afraid of me. Whatever is inside of me, that is the issue, and I don't want to engage it. And Jesus invites us into a deeper, more transformed life when we actually own getting exposed and we risk something, namely our own ego, and we get humbled and Jesus gets on. And let me tell you, you will mess it up. You will mess it up so much. And that's okay because we're not trying to live perfect lives. We're trying to live integrous ones. And it is rarely clean and it's typically full of heartache and brokenness, broken people, broken broken systems, broken structures. There are days where Sarah and I have sat and propped processed and cried because it genuinely feels like Satan is working harder than God. It is not that evil is present. It is that it feels overwhelming. But the ground that we keep coming back to is that the God of the universe's life was not clean. 
backstabbed by his disciple, betrayed by his own friend. If there is one who knows evil and injustice, it is the man who was strung up on a tree, innocently hanging between convicted felons, treated as a poor, naked lunatic who deserves public humiliation. If there is someone who knows the pain of sin and the evil of injustice, it is Yahweh. Now, hear me say this. I do not want to glorify poverty. Poverty greatly reduces quality of life. We desire to help people out of poverty. There is a level of contentment that you can experience when you are constantly not thinking about your next meal, about how you are going to get to your next appointment, about any choice that is going to massively cost you something else that is critically important. We should aim to be about, as best we can, walking with others and helping them in their circumstances out of poverty. But having said that, we are not in the business of purely charity. Charity is fine, but most of the time, charity walks. Charity walks away. Here is some coin. I hope this helps. I'm so glad I can have a little bit of guilt relieved from me. But Jesus is not in the business of offering a handout. Jesus is in the business of offering himself. That is his ask. That is his ask of us. Serving the poor is not the goal. Walking with them is the goal. Service takes a second of thought, and walking alongside them takes your entire life. Because if you strip it all away, there is no distinction between me and my neighbor. Our bank accounts are not identical, but there is literally nothing about my credit score and 401k that matters on the last day, and it's not going to hold a candle in eternity, so why do I put so much weight on it right now? Which brings us to the last part, which is the best part. And that is God's blessing is found in our pursuit of his image bearers. What happens when we get serious about God's desire for his church and desire for his world? What would happen if we did that? Well, he tells us. Light breaking in, healing speeding up, righteousness in front of us, glory around us, Lord, hearing us and answering. Light busting open the darkness, guidance, satisfaction, strength. And then there's this beautiful metaphor. You shall be like a well-watered garden, a spring whose water just continues to pour out and nourish thirsty people. Cities will be rebuilt, generations raised up, streets restored. This is the future, by the way. It's not the recipe for work, it's the recipe for joy. In the last six years, I have been on my own journey with this topic. And let me tell you, I have been absolutely undone. And whatever my life looks like for the next 50 years, I cannot go back. I cannot go back. Nothing about it is easy. And of course, it is difficult. It has tear-filled moments even this week. But underneath the pain is where we find God. 
the bedrock of life, life to the full, and yes, even in the midst of brokenness, life abundant and free. Growing, increasingly growing, detached from the things of the world and increasingly attaching ourselves to image bearers of God. For me, life with people on the edge is where we find Jesus. It's where we find his life in the Gospels. It's where we find his life in 2022 in a city like ours. We just did Ash Wednesday and we're reminded on the brevity of life. Let's figure out then how to give our life away, not keep it. And by the way, we're we're not doing this because it's cool or because it feels like maybe it's a cultural trend or even because this is what social justice looks like. We are doing this because it is the way of Jesus. It won't look the same for everyone. Everyone's role will be unique to their situation, season of life, family dynamic, and the Spirit's conviction as you open the Scriptures and ask. We are not clones of one another. We are all unique, which makes the church so beautiful. But God did not absolve himself from the poor of the world. He emptied himself to them. And in submission to him, we confess that he is Lord of heaven and earth. And we fall on our face before him. And in imitation of him, we do something radical and subversive. Actually follow what he says. into dark places because one day he is going to turn those places into rooms where only his light is visible, where there is only a garden and never a wasteland, where there is only life, never a graveyard, where hierarchy and inequity are banished, and the city of God contains the people of God filled with his presence, and the humbled get exalted, and those who are exalted get humbled. And some of you may be like, I don't even know someone on the margin. That's okay, because awareness, honesty, and recognition is a great first step. Awareness in and of itself doesn't change anything. However, nothing changes without you being aware. Literally nothing. And the step after awareness is prayer. In fact, awareness is an answer to a prayer you didn't even realize you were asking. Awareness is a great gift because in awareness, you get immediately exposed. And being exposed humbles you. Humble Humility leads you to the throne, and the throne compels you out. That's how it goes. Exposure, humility, grace, love. I dream about a church who takes Jesus so seriously and the Scripture so seriously and prayer so seriously that over the next day, fasting becomes this regular rhythm, depriving yourself of food to consider the ways God is inviting you into his mission. I hope that becomes second nature. I long for the day when the question that's regularly being asked by everyone in this church to everyone else in this church is, what is your next step with Jesus? What is Jesus inviting you into? I dream about a church that smells like they've been with Jesus in the private prayer closet and then smells like they've been with the poor on the streets of our city. A church who smells of the aroma of Christ that has compelled them to the neighborhood and places in the community where they would not have gone had Jesus not led them there. 
You cannot do everything. You are not called to do everything. Jesus has already done everything. He has defeated sin and will end death forever, but he is inviting you into more. This is our story. Orphaned, adopted. Sick, healed. Lost, found. Enemies of God, friends of God. Poor, rich. Even worse than poor, we were dead. And then Jesus made us alive. Why would we not go out and give our lives away? His love is what compels us to do such a ridiculously radical, loving, ordinary thing. That is what it means to imitate Him. And the irony is, and this is what has stunned me so much, the irony is, your life will be transformed ten times more than anybody else's. It is God's work in you. You do not concern yourself with what God will do in someone else's life. It is literally the last chapter of John when Peter is like, yeah, after he gets told you're going to hang upside down on a cross, he says to Jesus, yeah, but what about him? And he says, don't concern yourself with him. You follow me. That is the call. So over the next 40 days of Lent, during your time of prayer, during your time of fasting, simply ask God, where is my life intersecting with the lives of those on the margins? Give me a face. Give me a name. Give me a story. Or if you're not there yet, which you may not be, God, where can it start? Where might it start for me? Where might it start for you? Let's pray. Jesus, the, the task before us is actually too large for us. And so we just humbly ask for grace. And we humbly ask for mercy. We, we need you. Our city needs you. What are you inviting us into? What are you inviting me into? We say that we believe you are Lord of heaven and earth, but then we act like we are really Lord of the earth. These are your streets. This is your neighborhood. This is your world. So God, would you have your way in us? And it is in your holy and precious and magnificent name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message. If you want more information about our church, please visit us online at mosaicnox.org.